0: in the woods uh, pretty much all night, fell the fire,
1: and uh, could really hear the wolves howling around. Harold Hartway remembers being stranded in the remote upper peninsula of Michigan after the city of Bangor crashed ashore. I'm Rick Mixter with a story of how over 200 Chryslers ended up on the beach in 1926. This is ShipwreckPodcast.com. Keweenaw Peninsula juts 50 miles into Lake Superior. It's nearly as recognizable as Michigan's unique thumb, and it provides a unique obstacle for freighters that cross Gichigumi. A blizzard on the last day of November pushed the steamer city of Bangor onto Keweenaw's northern point in 1926. Oiler Harold Hartway remembers he was in his bunk just after dinner.
0: If I remember right, it was 6.15 on November 30th. And uh, where it all started, I don't remember, but I knew it was quite a rough ride for a while. I was in, the, uh, in my room at the time. I was off watch. And uh, my bunk was, uh,
1: well, let's say, short-shipped. Having his bedroom in the middle of the ship usually meant a more balanced ride, but not when the winds pushed the waves over 20 feet high. When I
0: roll over the one way, I'll be uh, down towards the foot of the bed and then I'd slide towards the head of the bed when it rolled the other way. took uh, quite a dip.
1: Harold couldn't sleep and he made the mistake of opening the outside door to see what was going on.
0: My room was on the starboard side and when it rolled over to the port I'd open the door and look out to see what was going on and I could see a car or two going overboard every once in a while. So I made sure I closed that door when I rolled back starboard again.
1: Captain William F. Mackin knew his steamer was in trouble, and he attempted to find a cove out of the gale-force winds. But Mother Nature had control, as the 372-foot car carrier lost its rudder and slammed into the shoreline about eight miles east of Copper Harbor.
0: Yeah, when we went aground, why the, uh, the uh, bar of the ship was somewhat up on the beach, and the uh, after end was uh, between two boulders ran up, and when the sea would raise the ship up, it would come down, hit one boulder, and then kind of roll a little bit over and hit the other boulder.
1: Harold said it was the engineer on duty who quickly extinguished the boilers, averting disaster, but turning the ship into a refrigerator without any source of heat.
0: Everything was flooded in the engine room. I guess it's a good thing he left steam out when he
1: did. Cold water hitting that hot, hot, hot uh, boiler and everything. I don't know what would have happened. The engine room team and cooks all assembled in the galley, where rumors ran rampant over why the ship was stalled on Lake Superior.
0: Well, when we hit the rocks, at first we didn't know where we was at, you know, and uh, we all gathered in the uh, dining room, and some of them said we hit another ship, and some of them said we hit the beach, and break ball and everything else, and uh, nobody knew what was going on. And some of the fellas was out on the deck and uh, slush a nice six, eight inches deep on the deck. And uh, the chef, well, I called them all into the dining room because if he didn't, well, he his throw out there on the
1: deck. The galley was warm with the cook stove running until a wave broke over the top of the banger and stole their smokestack.
0: He coming over washed the galley stack, you know, the smokestack from the stove, wash that overboard. And- and the opening was froze up and then the stove started smoking in the galley and we had to get the doors open and uh, at the time there was a lot of ice on the doors, uh, ice up in a hurry and uh, on one door we had to use an axe in order to uh, break through the door to get a little air and get the smoke out. Because when the stack went over we didn't know what happened. All of a sudden uh, the uh, black smoke, you know, Filling up in the galley, and then we had to get that fire out. And uh, trying to put the fire out with a little water or something, and, and that made that much more steam and smoke. And we had to get it out of the galley, so we had to kind of chop some holes in the door. It was so shut by the ice and get the smoke out.
1: Kerosene lamps and flashlights made the night tolerable, but when daylight came, everyone wondered why they hadn't heard from the captain.
0: The next day, uh, when the troop from the foreign end came back, the captain said to lower the lifeboat. So that took us quite a while, if I remember right, why that probably took us maybe around three hours So
1: to lower the lifeboat all covered with ice. Harold had a small hand axe that he used to chip away at the davit that was encased in ice. that's,
0: That's what we did, axes and hammers, whatever we had to chop ice. Because uh, to get that pulley, that rope to run through the pulley, well, you had to get pretty much all the ice out. But anyway, we got it down and into the water. And uh, oh, let me see, uh, six or eight of us go to shore, uh, between the ship and the shore. And uh, the first crew on shore, we tied a rope on the boat and kind of pull it back with a rope, you know, so it
1: wouldn't get away from us. The tethered lifeboat brought all 28 men safely ashore. And that's where Harold saw the remains of the cars he watched get washed over the deck. They were all unrecognizable as 1926 Chrysler sedans.
0: There was just one ball of uh, solid uh, steel, you know, just rolling and tumbling in the rocks and uh, right up onto the
1: beach. Nothing any good at all. Harold says the man immediately started trudging through four-foot snowdrifts trying to find help in the remote wilderness. His hand axe came in handy in more ways than one.
0: So, uh, we all got off uh, safely and, uh, and we started walking in the woods. We was in the woods all, pretty much all night. Filled the fire and uh, could really hear the wolves Around. Oh yeah, they were more hooping all over the place. I guess I was the only one who had an axe. And everybody uh, wanted to chop wood that night. I think they wanted to chop wood because it hurt the wolves. I wouldn't let go of it. I thought i out do the chopping. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of wood and dead wood laying around. We had a mammoth fire going and,
1: and uh, kind of kept the warmth. And and we started out walking again. Four captains were aboard the city of Bangor, including the skippers of the Romania and Sultana, hitching a ride from the lower lakes where they had laid their ships up for the winter. They had brought their luggage ashore along with the personal belongings of the crew. Everybody had a
0: certain amount of luggage, you know, and uh, nothing to eat, it was cold, we were hungry, and we would cross a little uh, creek or something like that, and get our feet wet, and ice wasn't frozen in there, and, and we're carrying our luggage, and we were carrying luggage for one of the captains. We had a, we cut a pole, a cedar pole, and uh, tied his luggage to pole, and a couple of us would uh, uh, carry his luggage for him, you know, plus our own luggage. Yeah, an elderly man, and, and uh, we all got tired. So we, we had to put it down.
1: Tired, with frozen toes and barely enough clothes to stay warm, the luggage slowly started to vanish into the woods. And then a captain realized his belongings weren't being portered for him. He
0: insisted somebody carry it, and some someone or other said, well, you're not in the boat now, captain. So they left the clothes, and he couldn't carry it, so they just wrapped them. Some of the fellas there are getting blue in the face.
1: Interviewed by Gareth McNabb over 50 years since the shipwreck, Harold's recollections were fading on the 36 hours they spent wandering in the woods. I kind of lose track of the time, whether it's day or night. I know we were walking the next morning. We uh, went through the little, uh, little clearing between
0: the in the woods and the water, and we could see something way out in the lake. So uh, we had a few players and sent up the flares, and uh, it happened to be a coast guard boat.
1: Bosun Anthony F. Glaza was in charge of that rescue boat, a gold medal winning hero who had saved dozens of lives when the L.C. Waldo stranded in the same area during the 1913 storm. They noticed the flares and the wreck of the banger and came into shore to find the survivors freezing on the beach. But there was no room on board their motorized lifeboat. They had been alerted by a phone call that another crew was in trouble on the Thomas Matham, a steamer that was further east around the peninsula. Loaded with the Matham's crew, they had to run over a dozen miles to get them to safety and then return for the banger's crew. And they came in
0: and uh, told us to build a fire on the uh, shore so they could know where we were and they'd be back after us they took that first crew in the uh, copper harbor and then they come back and got out
1: already some 30 miles into a rescue run glaza did what he promised returning to pick up the sailors in massive seas that towered over his small boat
0: all of the seas were still running running high at the time but uh i never saw anybody in my life could handle a uh coast guard boat Captain Laser Cut. He was right down in that trough of the sea all the time, and uh, oh, must have been 15, 20-foot seas there, and uh, you think he was riding on uh, calm waters. Every once in a while, we'd hit a, hit a wave and uh, shake us up a little bit, but 95% of the time right down in the trough of the sea. He was super, superman for Coast Guard.
1: Glaza was exactly that, and more. Most of the articles from the rescue and recovery of the cars were highlighted by photos from Glaza, who was one of the Great Lakes earliest photographers. He would later become commander of the Coast Guard's 11th district.
0: And we got back to the uh, Copper Harbor. And uh, oh, we went into some uh, big store, I guess it was in there. And they had a pot belly stove, and we all got around
1: there and got warm. After 36 hours of freezing temperatures, the crew of the city of Banger finally had relief.
0: In that little store, a pot belly stove, I, I uh, took my shoes off and opened the door and held my feet right up against the flame. And I felt real good. And then when I stood up, my feet fly over, I went. He said oh, that was the worst thing I could have done. Well, at the time, it felt real good.
1: The Coast Guard men recognized Harold had severe frostbite. They needed to gradually warm his feet in order to save them. Captain
0: Brazier was still there. And uh, he uh, got a big pan of ice-cold water and both my feet in it. And then he just gradually put in a cup at a time of hot water. Hours going on like that, the water got a little warmer and warmer and warmer all the time, starting from ice water to uh, warm water, spread along to deal with a cup at a time. But I think that saved my toes. I haven't had any trouble since that.
1: Upper hospitality was also arranged for their growling stomachs, which had only had an orange in about three days.
0: Someone made arrangements for. Uh, a little farmhouse there for us to get something to eat. And not far from uh, from the store, we went in there and stayed overnight, slept on the floor wherever we could. Had ham and eggs and coffee and everything was tasted real good at the time.
1: Harold and a half dozen other men would venture on to see a doctor. I don't know,
0: I think there were six of us I told were I was one of them, and we went into uh, I think it was the Calumet Hospital. We were in there three, four days.
1: The quick action of the Coast Guard had prevented the loss of their toes, but Harold says their hospital visit did have casualties.
0: Some of them lost their hearts, the girls up there, the nurses. Yeah, I guess a couple of them stayed up there, and I understand they got married lived up there, and I never heard from since.
1: The crew lost all of their personal belongings, most of which were on the ship, and the rest was dropped during their trek through the woods.
0: Well, everybody knew that we dropped our loads, you know, and uh, from what I hear, they, they went back the next day, and uh, the natives up there had a lot of clothing.
1: The real treasure was still on the city of Bangor, a reported quarter million dollars worth of brand new automobiles, The trick was how to get them off a stranded ship that was wedged permanently to the shoreline of one of the Great Lakes' most remote locations. Rotary plows carved into the drifts, first following old logging roads, but eventually turning into the woods for a direct path to Horseshoe Bay. In early February, a blizzard stopped the trailblazers just four miles into their new roadway. And a Duluth firm opted to use the frozen shoreline to move the cars instead of a road directly to the shipwreck. A wooden ramp accessed a hole cut into the side of the ship to find hundreds of cars below decks. The frozen onboard elevator was a monolith of ice, unusable to salvers. 100 cars on deck had to be cut from the ice and snow and then driven to Horseshoe Bay. The cars were moved that winter to Copper Harbor, where rumors persist that locals managed to keep a new Chrysler in the confusion of the transfer. Eventually, the cars were rehabbed and sold, except the ones crushed by the waves and ice, and a single car that remains at the Eagle Harbor Lighthouse today. Well, let's put it this way I was at the Nicholson Terminal and Dock Company. Harold Hartway wasn't about to sign up for another boat after the banger was lost, but he did stay with the Nicholson line. Helping to build their dock at Ecorse and marrying Captain William Nicholson's niece.
0: Well, I was starting out, and I didn't know what I wanted, whether to sail or on shore or what. And uh, I suppose if I was a little older, I might have liked it better, but I wasn't too enthused about it. But that uh, that wreck made me sure of what I wanted to do. That was to get off the ship.
1: Porter Mike Wenta also vowed not to return to the lakes, but 30 years later took a job in the galley on the A.M. Byers. Lightning struck twice as he was the only crewman hurt when the E.M. Ford and Byers collided, sending the buyer to the bottom of the St. Clair River in 1956. He wouldn't be the only banger survivor to make headlines after that shipwreck, as Harold was also in the papers during a scandal that ripped through Nicholson Transit. Prosecutors in Detroit alleged that Captain William Nicholson contracted to have two of his old side-wheelers burned for insurance money. Court records say that the two men who confessed to setting the steamers Dover and Keystone afire said that the captain originally had asked Harold and another man to do it. They reportedly blackmailed Nicholson and his nephew for several hundred dollars to keep the secret. By 1933, the captain and Charles Nicholson were acquitted and two arsonists, who confessed to torching the ships, spent time in jail and paid fines. Harold enjoyed a 40-year employment with Nicholson, but passed away in 1990 at age 83. The wreck of the city of Bangor remained as testimony to the dangerous passage at Keweenaw for decades, joined two years later by the steamer Altadoc. Captain Glaza was again in the rescue boat to bring the crew of the Altadock ashore. Both ships were gradually picked apart by salvers, with the remaining hulls removed during a metal drive during World War II. In the fall of 1943, a bulldozer plowed through the wilderness once again, reaching the hull of the banger that was about 200 feet from shore. K.H. Straits of Flint was the salver that used dynamite and torches to cut the ship into pieces and drag them ashore to be cut further for transport out of the Upper Peninsula. Only small pieces of steel and rivets remain on the spot that snagged the city of Bangor in 1926. An inventory or even the exact coordinates don't exist, but the photographic archive supplied by Bozen Anthony Glaza continues to captivate us nearly 100 years later. I'm Rick Mixter. This podcast wouldn't have been possible without the generosity of maritime researcher Gareth McNabb, who interviewed Harold Hartway in 1979. Gareth passed away in 2011, and he leaves a legacy in maritime history. I'd also like to thank Brendan Baylod and Mark Rowe for their research on the city of Banger, and remind you to check out our store for books and DVDs. Remember, purchases lead to more podcasts, and your input and shares are just as important. You can get in touch with me at lakefury.com or shipwreckpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.